0: podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe. Being like the Bereans, we search the Scriptures, joyfully receiving what's taught, but searching the Scriptures to see whether or not these things are so. The Bible also tells us that we are to rightly divide the Word of God. And Peter warned us against men that twist Scripture. And we know that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. That we would know that as we search God's word, we're finding the very words that lead to life and help us to live the life that God has called us to live. Now, if you have a question today, then write the word question out or put a QR question mark and then write your question out reread it a couple of times make sure that it makes sense and then go ahead and submit your question also add any biblical references to them and we will be able to open up the scriptures i'll be able to share them with you on the screen so that we can look and maybe see what the context is and a lot of times by looking at the context we're able to figure out what the answers to those questions are so it's good to see you guys glad to have you joining us our first question comes from a uh, comment that was left on our YouTube channel. And the comment was about sin. Are there any properties of sin that make it sin? In other words, did God just randomly choose, I need something to be off limits, I need something to be a sin. So I'm going to choose this, this and this. Some people think that God said, everything that is fun, I'm going to make a sin. But of course, we know that's not true because to do harmful things is sinful. And even though some sinful things may be pleasurable and may be fun for us, the 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 what makes sin the same is that there are certain qualities or properties within sin. And this is a great question, by the way, and thank you for taking time to submit it. Uh, Sin is sin, not because God just said he wanted to make it sin, but sin is sin because there's something inherent in sin that is destructive, that is deceptive, that is hurtful. We could take every sin. You could say slandering or bearing false witness. Look at the damage that that does in the eyes of other people to someone's reputation. No wonder it was one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And no wonder we're told over and over again in the New Testament not to be slanderous. Make sure when you're talking about people that you're being truthful. And love even tells us, the Bible even tells us that love covers a matter. That is, that if I know something about someone that is going to make you feel less about them, that I don't tell you. Because in love, I'm wanting them to find forgiveness to make things right. Stealing is inherently wrong. Taking something that somebody else has. Fornication is inherently wrong. The Bible talks about that being a sin against our own body. And I don't even think we know all of the distru- or understand all of the destructive nature of sexual sin. It's one of the reasons that we should be fighting against it. Anger, wrath, malice, all of these have their, they're inherently wrong. Now, the Bible did teach about trespasses. Someone could put up a sign that says no trespassing. And you go to that sign and you cross over it. And now walking on that land is not inherently wrong. But being rebellious against someone who owns the land who said, don't go on this land, that makes it wrong. When I like to use the example, in our, in our sanctuary, we don't allow coffee. And that's because we found too many stains. Does that mean people don't bring coffee into our sanctuary? No, on the contrary, there are a lot of people who bring coffee in and they are transgressing. Is there anything inherently wrong with bringing coffee into the sanctuary? No. But if they know that we don't want it in there because there's been too many stains in the carpet and carpet's expensive at that level, at that square footage to be able to replace, then there is something about rebelliousness. Listen, we don't want sin in our lives. And one of the things that I love about walking with God is that our inner man is being renewed day by day. And as we desire to walk with him, giving him holiness, giving him righteousness, repenting asking him to forgive us that god's spirit works in us so we begin to grow and to overcome the very sins that we struggled against because we don't want the deceptive destructive nature that is inherent within sin and maybe this helps us and will help us if you have a sin that you've been justifying and thinking that it's okay, and you haven't repented from it, that means you've got unrepentant sin in your life. And there is going to be destructiveness that takes place. The Bible says, can a man sow to the wind and not we- reap the whirlwind? The Bible says, whatever you sow, you're gonna reap. And you sow to the Spirit, from the Spirit you will reap life. And you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you will reap corruption. And so now we know that sinful behavior, sins, bring deception. We can be self-deceived. Sin is deceptive. They bring corruption, destruction, and even death. And I don't know that every every little sin won't bring death into your life, but something dies. And this is why God wants it out of our lives. And that's why as we walk with him, the more we grow, the more sanctified we become, The more we are working sin out of our lives, the better off we are going to be and God's going to bless us in even greater ways. So yes, sin has something inherent in it that makes it sin, even if it's a trespass, because God said, don't do that. And if there's nothing inherently wrong with doing that, there is something inherently wrong with being rebellious and doing what God asked you not to do and we don't want to have that rebellion to him. Walking in love, when you're not walking in love, that's sinful. To be a Christian who doesn't walk in love to the people around him is sinful because there's something inherently destructive and hurtful and wrong about not loving God and not loving the people that are around you. To be a servant to people around you. We know as Christians, we're supposed to be servants because God told us to. And if we say, I'm not gonna be a servant, I'm gonna I'm gonna get people to serve me and I'm not gonna serve people around me. Well, that's inherently wrong because God's called us to be a servant, to shine as a light for him. And we could go to every sin that's out there and we can see that there's something inherent in the sin that makes it wrong and brings about destruction and deceptive, uh, brings around deception. Understanding this helps us to be able to fight sin because we can say, I don't want sin in my life. I want God to reveal it to me. And then I want to call out on his name. I want to trust in him and I want to remove those things. So, yes, there is something within sin that makes sin wrong. It's not just God choosing something that may be pleasurable or fun. And when you think of murder, it's easy for us to understand. You're taking someone's life. What a horrible thing. Someone's living and you take their life. No wonder God said, when you when you kill someone, then you, you, you yourself shall be killed because you have killed someone in the image of God. By the way, this is also such a horrible thing with the unborn. When you take the life of the unborn. In the Old Testament, God rebuked the children of Israel because they had begun to follow the pagan practices of the world around them. And they began to fornicate and have babies. And then they would offer their babies to Molech. And God said to them, you have offered my children. Even though these babies were a result of of the fornication and immorality in the Old Testament, what God called whoring, those babies were still a part, were still his. And they were sacrificing his children. The same thing is true with the unborn. It's inherently wrong to take someone's life from them. Can you imagine all the millions of babies that have been killed? And what a great evil and wickedness this is in our world today. So yes, sin is inherently wrong. There are certain properties of sin that make it sin. And when we understand that, it helps us to be able to go, I don't want that in my life, God. Help me to see sin the way you see it, I don't want sin, even if I want it in my flesh, I don't want it. And Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to bring us to desire righteousness and holiness, to get out the destructive nature of sinful things within our lives. And may we serve him and love him in all of those ways. So it's good to see you guys. Glad to have you here. Uh, we had a little bit of a, of a difficulty earlier today. I posted this Q&A for something like 1045, and so it's been up all day. When I came in to click on here, I noticed that it said sign in early. And uh, so I, uh, I had to cancel that one and re put up another one. So some of you may not be finding this. There also seems to be a problem with some of the Facebook pages right now. So it looks like we've only got YouTube, which is the case. So today is just a YouTube hangout. We're just hanging out and answering questions from YouTube. And I kind of get to see which one of you guys are on YouTube. So our first question comes from Fact Check These Hands. And Fact Check These Hands has a question about Ezekiel 318 and whether or not it applies for today. So let's go ahead and take a look. Ezekiel 3, 18. Oh, let me, sorry, let me go back again. Uh, let's see, so Ezekiel 3, 18. All right, so let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. Uh, thank you, fact check these hands, I appreciate that. And we'll put up on the screen and we'll take a look at this. So Ezekiel 318 says, and I don't know what the setting of this is. We'll see if I can just remember it or if we get it as we're reading along here. Um, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you give him no warning and give him no warning, nor uh, nor speak uh, to warn the wicked from the wicked way to save his life that the shame of the wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at his hand. All right, well, I need to know the context of this um, since I don't know it completely. So just let me take a moment to look back at this context. All right, so it's Ezekiel, it's the watchman. Let's just go back a couple of verses. Let's try to read it in context and see if we can figure it out. Um, Because obviously Israel was a theocracy. God was the one who was ruling and God was giving them direction here. let's see what the direction was. So this is Ezekiel uh, is a watchman. It says, now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning for me. Now, God has made us a watchman too, a watchman to the world that we would warn them that as, as witnesses for Christ, our responsibility to be a watchman and to let them know Jesus could come back at any moment to let them know to give their lives to Christ that when they die, they might be able to be in heaven. And so he says to them, give them a warning. Then he says, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. So note that when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked for his wicked way, to serve his life that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity but his blood is required at your hand okay so i completely read this wrong the first time through so let's go back and take it again when i say to the wicked you shall surely die okay so god is now saying to wicked people you're gonna die and gonna be in in hades And he says, and you shall surely die, and you shall give no warning. So we have a responsibility to warn the wicked that they're going to die from his wicked way and serve his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So yes, I do believe that there is a way in which this is applied to us today. Let's go on and read just a little bit more here before I wrap up my thoughts on this. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteous ways and commits iniquity, I will lay a stumbling block before him and he shall die because you did not give warning. He shall die in his sins and in his righteousness will he have done shall be shall not be remembered. All right, so this passage, fact check these hands, um, takes slowly, methodically working through it, getting the setting of the nation of Israel, what was going on at the time, when Ezekiel was warning them, which was just right before they are taken into captivity, and that God had set them in the midst of a nation as a a watchman, that they would learn and grow from them, and they were to take their responsibility seriously about warning people. Now, when we bring it over to us and we look for application, there's not always a direct correlation from an Old Testament application, uh, statement to a New Testament application. So we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are the light of the world. There is a way in which we are the watchman on the wall and God reveals to us the truth. We have the keys to the kingdom And so we wanna live our lives in such a way that people can see Christ. And we wanna be led by the Holy Spirit so that we can be able to share Christ with those who are perishing. And we should be praying for the lost and seeking them. Now, God held them responsible for the blood of those that they did not warn in their wickedness. And you and I have no such New Testament statement that we are that the blood, their blood comes upon us when we have not warned them. So even though when we read that, we can look at that application and say, Lord, help me that I would not that I would not not warn the wicked, which would mean I would warn them. No, I wouldn't warn them. the, the wicked of uh, what life is going to be after they die, in what life could be if they live for him. And the fact that they will die because of certain sins. And may God give us wisdom to be able to do that. But the consequence of having their sin laid at our door or, or the responsibility for them laid at our door, uh, I don't know if we can find a New Testament passage that correlates to that. I'm trying to think maybe we can, but I can't think of one we want to be a faithful light, though. And we certainly don't want to find out that we could have shared Christ with someone and someone didn't make it into heaven. And I mean, God's the one who calls and God's the one who saves and God can do work in their lives. But that doesn't relieve us of the responsibility of sharing our faith. All right. so thank you fact check these hands um, for that. Um, The watchman on the wall, Uh, we need to do an in-depth study. And maybe we should do a hot topic on that entire passage where we can talk about witnessing and sharing and what the New Testament says compared to what that says. I think it would be a great special hot topic with a Q&A that follows after that. And that way we could break it down and get the settings and everything that is there in order to really understand what our call is today and how that relates to us. All right. So uh, we have a question from Kara. Kara says in 1 Corinthians 6 3, what angels will we be judging? Are we going to judge the angels of Satan at the end of time? Let's go ahead and take a look at this passage. So it is 1 Corinthians 6 3. And this is an interesting passage. And I'm going to go back to verse 1. We're so close to the beginning of the chapter, and that may help us a little bit may help me a little bit in reading it correctly. So um, it says, dare any of you having a matter against another go to the law before unrighteousness and not before saints? So in their church in Corinth, they were suing each other and taking each other to court rather than yielding and walking in love and being reasonable and even having someone who's spiritual enough to take them in. It says, do you not know? I mean, is is someone wise enough among them to be able to sit down and mediate between them? That if Christians are doing what they're supposed to be doing in wanting to follow the Lord and do the things that God tells us to do, then we want to uh, make sure that we're not suing one another. He says, do you not know that the saints will, that the saints will judge the world? So that's interesting that we as the saints are gonna judge the world. I think we can go into the millennium period where we are sitting on thrones and serving. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? It's not that you just take being defrauded from someone, but figure out a way to deal with these things without suing each other. Do you not know that we shall judge angels. How much more things then pertain to this life? And to answer Paul here, uh, yeah, Paul, we don't know that we will judge angels. What exactly does that mean? Does it mean that God is going to have us somehow involved in the judgment of all of the fallen angels? And will all of the fallen angels be judged? And will we have a part in judging against them. I kind of think it's got something to do with that. It's certainly not speaking about us judging angels that haven't fallen, but it's got to be about judging angels who 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 have fallen and done something wrong. Otherwise, why would they need judging? So you've got the angels that fell during the days of Noah. You've got angels that are held in chains. You've got demonic spirits that were afraid that Jesus was going to send them someplace before their time. Um, This is one of the phrases that Paul makes that you wish he would have expounded on when it comes to angels. Do you not know that you will judge angels? And then in 1 Corinthians 11, same book, he says, cover your head, if you're a woman, cover your head for the sake of the angels, which not having your head covered was a sign of a lack of authority of your husband. And so it's like, we, we don't understand, what does that mean? That angels are watching us and we're gonna judge angels? But the world, the angelic world, we don't know so much about it. You could be an expert on the angelic world and only know a fraction of what's really taking place in that celestial kingdom with these angelic beings. And I think that God did that on purpose because it would be easy for us to get fascinated with them when we're to be in love with God. And we're to do everything that we do because we have a love for God. And and not a, a love for angelic beings. And we can be distracted away from God so easily. So we have a lot that we don't know. So, yes, we will in some way judge angels. And if we're going to be entrusted to judge angels, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Are we not able to judge matters between ourselves? and to determine what is right or wrong between ourselves. And I think that is such a good point, especially when we end up having discrepancies with one another and facing different kinds of difficulties uh, with each other. Now, since this is just YouTube today, uh, you YouTubers uh, carry the weight. So if you have a question, write the word question down, write out your question, Reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your question. So we have a question now from jari jari joins us from youtube because that's all we have today and jari says um what is the bow the rider on the white horse is carrying does it symbolize war something else false teaching etc revelation 6 1 through 2. all right let's go ahead and pull that up jari um a great passage and we're not far away from covering that we'll be covering it within a few months in the book of Revelation. And this is after the tearing of the first seal. And then, well, let's read it here. So it says, I now I saw when a lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse who, who, sat on it, had a bow and a crown was given him and he went out to conquer and to be conquered. So the two things that we find is that he has a bow in his hand. Come and see, um, who sat on it, had a bow on his hand and a crown was given on his head to conquer and to be conquered. So this first horse is the antichrist. Remember in 2 Thessalonians, it says that because they thought they were in the tribulation period, and Paul says, you know, don't be deceived by people coming to you saying that that there is a letter from us. And then he says, but that day will not come upon you unless the falling away comes first. And so we know there's gotta be some kind of falling away first. That could be the rapture of the church. It could be the apostasy, meaning that people are falling away like they are today. We see a lot of Christians who are falling away from Christ. And then it says, and the man of sin will be revealed. It doesn't mean the man of sin has to be revealed. First, it never says that. And it's funny to me how many people read it that way. They say, well, the man of sin has to be revealed before there can be a rapture, so it can't be before the tribulation period. It simply says, and the man of sin will be revealed. So in Revelation 4, There's a door open in heaven. And before the faithful church of Philadelphia, God had opened a door for them. And then with a shout, the voice like a trumpet, it says, come up here. And John finds himself in the heavenly realm for two chapters, four and five. And we get those heavenly visions in Revelation, which are fantastic. And then we get the opening of the seals, which is the beginning of the judgment of God. And the very first horse that comes out is the Antichrist. Now, the four horses here, You go back to Zechariah in chapters one and six, you find horses that ride throughout the entire world. And they come back with a report that there's peace in the land and people don't care about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And this makes God angry. And then in chapter six, we've got the horses pulling the chariots and they go out and subdue the world by war. And so the bow and the crown the bow would speak of his weapons and the ability to go out and and, and 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 war against others and strike others with weapons. The crown, that he is a ruler, and we're told clearly that he conquers and is given to conquer. And he becomes the, the world leader of the one world government, the revived Roman Empire, which in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, the head of gold was Babylon, the chest of silver was the Medo-Persian Empire. The stomach of brass, stomach and hips of brass, was the Greek Empire. The legs of iron was the Roman Empire. And then the feet and, uh, and, and uh, calves and feet of clay and iron. That's very brittle, by the way. That's the last revived Roman Empire, and that's the one we haven't seen yet. And a rock comes out, taps it on its toe, and the whole thing collapses all the world powers collapse. Because you build a statue where the thing on the very bottom is clay mixed with iron. And so the Antichrist doesn't hold the same kind of a kingdom. He holds the kingdom that will be around when the world collapses around him. So this is why he rides out on a horse. When we compare it in other places in prophecy, especially like the book of Revelation, like the book of Zechariah, then you see that the, the horse itself represents someone that's going out throughout the world, and in in Zechariah 6 anyway, it, at least it represents war. And uh, they have chariots that are there. So yeah, this first seal is the Antichrist. Now, there are those that will say that it is Christ, but there's no way that this is Jesus riding forth. Um, Jesus eventually will ride forth, and yes, he will conquer, he will conquer everything, we see that this is the beginning of the tribulation period. We see the progression of the of the things that follow after him. Eventually, the pale horse, death, and and the grave, and all of the people that die during the tribulation period. This is not Jesus. Jesus will ride back on a white horse, but it will be at the end of time when he rides back on this white horse. All right. So thank you very much, uh, Jari. I appreciate that, and um, I appreciate. Oh, is it Jari who submitted that question? Yes. Um, Good question, Jari. by the way. And uh, Daniel, good to see you, Daniel, by the way. Uh, Daniel says, Can you explain the difference between sin and dietary laws? Was it health or something else? All right. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate that. Yes, I would love to. So in the law, there, there were several different kinds of the law. There was the moral law, which included most of the Ten Commandments. There was the ceremonial law, which talked about ceremonies that they were supposed to do. Passover was one of them. The Sabbath day was another one, and that's why I said it's most of the Ten Commandments are the moral law. The um, ceremonial law, and there was the dietary laws and the festival laws. So festivals that you were to keep, um, ceremonial would include uh, sacrifices that you were supposed to make. Uh, uh, during that time, and so, um, yeah, the moral law, we would say, is sin. God's dealing with sin, and again, rebellion is a sin, and there's something inherently wrong with rebellion, so when God told the children of Israel to keep the ceremonial laws, we're not dealing with sin now at all, we're just dealing with ceremonial laws. If they don't keep them, that is the sin of rebellion, So it's not in the ceremonial, whatever they were doing in the ceremonies or not doing that caused it to be sin. If they didn't do it, it was in their hearts. Same was true with the dietary laws. Now that's why we're not under them today because we've been set free from them. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law would be done away with until it was fulfilled. And Jesus fulfilled it. We like to say that Moses opened up the law and Jesus completed it. It's not that he said, we're not doing this anymore and just pushed it aside. He fulfilled everything in the law and everything spoke of him. Every jot and every tittle was completed. That's the dying of Isaac Christ and of the T's in Hebrew was completed in Jesus. So clearly it says in the book of Galatians that we are no longer under the law. And if you are living under the law, then if you can be saved by the law, then Christ died in vain and that the law was weak and that it could not save us. So the, the law had its problems, but there were different parts of the law. So, yes, there we, we follow the moral law. Like, for example, murder, let's talk about murder again. Uh, second time in one podcast. Uh, so God had said early on that anyone who murders, they will be killed themselves. That was before the law. So this was a moral issue lying, stealing, um, adultery were all wrong before the law. And then the law was given which reiterated those sinful things and they were placed within the law. But we didn't have the ceremonial stuff before the law was given by Moses. We didn't have the, um, the Sabbath, we didn't have the festivals or the new moons, all that we find in the law, the dietary restrictions we're not before the law. And so all of those things we don't follow. Now, if there's something reiterated in the New Testament, then we follow it. In fact, Colossians tells us that these things, not to not to allow anyone to put you under bondage with new moons and festivals, Sabbaths, all of these things that are very Jewish. And then he says, for these things are a shadow of things to come. So the Old Testament law was a shadow of Jesus coming into our lives. And when something is reiterated in the New Testament, then we'll, we want to keep it from the law. But if it's not, we don't want to. Examples of this would be tithing, the Sabbath day, uh, other, um, the dietary restrictions, uh, certain, you know, certain ceremonies that they were like pa- Passover. We don't keep Passover because we were never told to keep it in the New Testament. These things were all the Old Testament law. Now, so many people get confused about this issue, Daniel. They so easily believe that we have to keep parts of the law in order to 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 please God and to find ourselves living right with Him. And I think that the reason that's done is because when I begin to do something like that, then I, I can take I can take credit for it. So the Bible says, we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. Or not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so that when I begin to do things by works, then I begin to believe that, well, I did it. And that's why it's so bad to add sacraments, speaking in tongues, baptism, what day you go to church, um, certain things that other uh, churches that teach works believe. And and when you are a church that's doing that, then you yourself are not following the things that God has told you to do. You are, you are not believing by faith. And we of all people have been set free and we are the most free and are not under the law at all. All right, so thank you, uh, Daniel. I really appreciate that uh, good question. Uh, we have another question from carol carol good to see you carol says um is that you as a baby carol or is that yeah as a child um carol says uh, galatians 1 6 new king james current woman's bible study i marvel that you so quickly left the gospel modern connection to marvel is wonder admiration astonish and it connotes a bewilderment, shocking shock. How do you reconcile, explain the differences between the modern and ancient contractions, uh, connect, uh, connotations of these words? Okay, Um, so Carol, here's what I would like to know in order to really kind of answer your question correctly. So you have a word here. In the Greek, I marvel that you are so soon leaving the gospel for another gospel that is not another gospel. It's not, that's not another good news. And then you give these connections between the new King James and the King James and the words that are used. Remember the King James was written 400 years ago. And the English language has changed so much so that you could barely understand someone speaking English 400 years ago. And that's why to hang on to the the 1611 version of the Bible as if God somehow inspired that version, which of course the Bible never says that God inspired that English version of the Bible, the 1611. And that anybody who reads anything different than the 1611 is in sin. And all of these new translations are against the 1611 are are against the inspired word of God. God didn't inspire in 1611, a set of, of manuscripts that were translated into English and make every word of that translation not wrong. In fact, we know that the 1611 version has things that are wrong in it from the translations that they brought over. It's the originals that were inspired by God, and God preserved them by so many manuscripts coming to them, and then through manuscript evidence and and bringing them back together again, we come to what we believe. So the New King James uses a different word because the New King James, although it uses the same set of manuscripts, I think it's the Texas Receptus that it uses, the same as the King James, it brings it into something that's more modern. They just didn't modernize it. They went back and they looked at the the manuscripts once again. That way, if the King James made mistakes, and it did, there were no unicorns in the world, although the King James Bible says there were unicorns. And there are those who will defend it, that it's wild ox, and they try to make it into a unicorn. It's not a unicorn. Uh, But... If, if one uses a word and, and then an, and then a more modern day language uses another word, then you understand they're trying to make clear what those um, what those manuscripts say, the Greek word. And there's always going to be and these are scholars, but there's always going to be some disagreement as to what's the better word. So let's look at it again. Let me just read your 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 question again, Carol. Galatians one, six. Current woman's Bible study, I marvel that you are so quickly turned left to the gospel. Modern connotation of marvel, this is uh is wonder, admire, astonish, and I V connotes bewilderment. And uh then, let's see, shocked, shaken, how do you reconcile and explain these differences between the modern and the ancient? So that's what we're talking about. And I by looking at all of them, sometimes when I'm looking for the meaning of a word. Like today in our Bible study, the word benefactor comes up and I wanted to find out what the benefactor meant. And so I looked it up in different translations as one of the first ways to look at it and then looked it up in BDAG to be able to really kind of figure out exactly what that word meant, uh, what it meant in the Greek word, you know, benefactor. I understand what that is kind of today, um, but and I can look at the dictionary definition, but that doesn't give me all of the all, all of the richness that comes out of the Greek word. And so it's because the King James was so long ago, and people are the the different people making these translations. ESV, NAV, NASB, um, New King James, all good versions of the Bible, but have different scholars with it, and they're going to try to use words that connote the best understanding in the context. Of what they're studying. And so that's why there are differences. All right, Carol, hopefully that is helpful. Um, certainly would welcome a follow up question if uh, you have one on on that, if there's just one a little bit more clarity on it, or if I didn't quite get your question right, right, quite right. All right, since we're on the YouTube today, we're gonna take uh, questions from the same people. We're not limiting them to one like we normally do. So fact check these hands, has a question. How how can you how can an infant born during the tribulation reject the mark if the uh, if the parent decides the baby shouldn't have it? Okay, so thank you. Fact check these hands. I appreciate that. So here is so here's the, the question. When you take the mark of the beast. Now you can no longer be saved. So if you have a baby, that's born during the tribulation period. Now the parents make it take the mark of the beast. Could it be that that baby could not be saved? And my answer to that is no. Um, The mark of the beast isn't something that makes you unclean so you can't be saved. It's something you've done in your heart in rejecting God, accepting the Antichrist, pledging allegiance to him to be able to take the mark on the back of your hand, and your forehead, to be able to buy and sell things. So it's the rebellion in your own heart that turns that into an unforgivable sin. So that if a child is forced to take it, and I don't believe, I, I believe that the children will be taken out of, of the rapture, children will go in the rapture. I believe that. And I've got I've, I've done videos on it and got scriptures that back up why I believe that. But if you're talking about a child being born during the tribulation period and then being made to take the mark of the beast, then no, they, they, the child will be saved. Because God makes a distinction between those who can know what their right and left hand is. When God was in Nineveh and Jonah wanted to see them destroyed, God said, isn't there 120,000 here who don't know their right hand from their left hand? When the children of Israel wandered and rebelled against God, God didn't hold the former generation guilty for the things that that generation did. So the, or or the younger generation guilty for what the older generation did, they wandered and died in the wilderness and everyone 20 years and younger was able to enter into the promised land and was not held responsible for the rebellion of their parents. And so everybody will be held responsible for their own rebellion so could it be that a child could take the mark of the beast and still make it into heaven yes if that child is and for lack of a better term that child has not reached the age of accountability all right so um thank you fact check these hands for your question i really do appreciate that and again good to see all of you guys here good to have you here uh we are in luke 22 tonight and we're going to be talking about biblical uh, biblical leadership, the difference between leadership in the world and biblical leadership, and how living by biblical leadership uh, is really faith. You trust God because you're not promoting yourself, you're not lifting yourself up, you're allowing God to do what God's going to do. And that will be our, our chapter today, our, our study tonight, as the disciples argue in the upper room about who is going to be the greatest. All right, so we have a question from Barbara. Barbara says, I heard in Eden, humans and animals were vegetarian, as there was no death. After the fall, there was death, humans began to eat meat, and God put fear of man in the animals for their survival. Yes, um, right, let me just see what the question is here. Barbara, thank you for your question. So let me just kind of explain what happened there in Genesis. So yes, they were vegetarian before the fall. They, had, they ate of all the trees in the garden that were food for them. And there was a tree of life that was there and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil against rebellion of God. They weren't to eat of that tree. And so they were expelled from the garden and God killed an animal and, and made coverings for them. And this is the first place that you find in bloodshed and the bloodshed is for covering, and it speaks of the covering of sin that animals could have in our lives, and then the cleansing of sin by the blood of Christ that was absolutely pure. And then when they came, um, when well, when they came out, they were told that they could eat of the animals that were on the earth. I'm trying to think exactly where that passage is, uh, but they could eat of the animals that were on the earth. They were all the animals were given to them for food, and so. It's not just that they began to eat animals, but that God told them they could eat animals, and that things seemed to, to change at that point. And so, I don't know what that says about vegetarian and non-vegetarian. I do know if you are vegetarian that you got to work very hard on getting a complete protein uh, in, in, in order to eat that, and that it's difficult to get that complete protein. Um, Some people are Piscatarian. They eat only fish um, as far as meat and then other vegetables. But um, and yeah, God did put the fear of man in the animals because men were eating animals. So God was like, I'm going to give them a fair shot here that they would be scared of man because men are doing those things. All right. So I I hope that answers your question, Barbara. If not, please feel free uh, to ask a follow through. So we got a good good number of people watching. and we have another question from andre andre good to see you uh, why does luke tell us paul and the company came to thessalonica where there was a synagogue of jews acts 17 1 is there another kind of synagogue my guess is that there there's no but let's go there let's oh but let's look at this first let's go to Acts 17 I thought you were gonna go another direction with this question. Uh, In Acts 17, 1, right? Yep. Uh, It says, let me get this up on the screen for you. It says, uh, now when they had, when they passed through, uh, now when they had passed through, and and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then it says, then Paul, as was his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, and I love that. I mean, this whole section is great. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the christ and some of them were persuaded so some of these jews in the synagogue got saved a great multitude of devout greeks and not a few leading women joined paul and silas but the jews who were not persuaded became envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar to attack the house of jason and sought to bring them out to the people but when they did not find them they dragged jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here, too. What a thing to have said about Paul. Jason has harbored them and they are uh, they are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. So they were supposed to give incense and say Caesar is Lord. That was the decree from Caesar. And they weren't doing that, saying there's another King Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Um, From there, Paul ends up going from Thessalonica to Berea, and that's the next thing that happens. So uh, let's go ahead and look at your question here again, Andre. So you're asking if there is any other kind of synagogue of the Jews. No, I don't think there was. I think that synagogue is Jewish. I think he's just saying that's what it was. It would be like you saying, um, I, went to, <clears throat> I went to a Christian church. I went to a church that was Christian today. So the synagogue, and it was Paul's MO to go into the synagogue first because they already had the foundations for the Old Testament. And so there would be this mixture in every city of Jews and Gentiles who had gotten saved, which is interesting. We also know that some of the Jews wanted to go back to sacrifices and go back to the temple at a certain point in time. And so, um, and that's from the book of Hebrews that we know that it was written to tell them not to do such things uh, at all. So, yeah, it it is the synagogue of the Jews. And uh, we will be talking a little bit more about synagogues, not this coming up Wednesday. I'm actually going to take a day off on Wednesday. Um, But the following Wednesday, we'll be in the Church of Smyrna. And we'll be talking about synagogues from that passage. All right. So thank you very much, Andre. I appreciate that. Uh, So Rod says, question. Do you see Catholic religion as a cult? They pray to Mary instead of Jesus, count rosaries and have numerous ordinances. Um, I do not see them as a cult. And the reason I don't see them as a cult is because they hold to they hold to what all of us hold to when it comes to the the Godhead, to the deity of Jesus, the God in one. They believe that God is one in essence, three in persons. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe Jesus died for their sins. They believe that he gives us the Holy Spirit. Uh, they 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 can believe and be saved. Now they hold tradition as high as we hold Scripture. Sometimes you would think that they hold tradition higher than we hold Scripture, but that's really not the case. I mean, maybe it may be that they do that. That's why Jesus said, "Don't call anyone father," and they call someone father. Uh, that there's no mediator between us and man, but they have Mary as a mediator which is a problem, and they pray to saints, which is a problem. Now, if I'm talking to someone who's Catholic and I ask them how they got saved, and they tell me by putting my trust in Jesus Christ, by, by receiving him, inviting him into my life, by being born again, then they can be saved, even though they have other beliefs like the rosary and some of these other things that are wrong. They can be saved because it's not, what you believe wrong that allows you to enter into heaven or keeps you out of heaven instead it's what you believe and trust in him and give your life wholeheartedly uh, to him so i do not say that they're a cult when you're looking at a cult you're looking at someone that denies the deity of jesus that has a different view of the godhead of jesus and this is why some that look very Christian we would say no they're a cult because of the way that they what they, what they believe about Jesus and the way that they believe all right so thank you um Rod, I appreciate that uh, I I do know that not everyone has I'm gonna just gonna say as much grace as what I do or what some other Christians do about the Catholic Church. I do realize there are a lot of Catholics that are not saved, but there are churches everywhere that are not saved. I mean, there are Christians everywhere in churches everywhere that are not saved. Just because you go to a church doesn't make you a Christian. You have to have a, a relationship with him. All right. So I'm not I'm not justifying anything that they're doing. I believe that it's wrong and speak about it on a regular basis and talk about the difference and try to make sure that they have received Jesus as their savior. All right, so thank you very much. Um, So Calvary Tucson has a question. I don't know who this is. Um, It says uh, Facebook is working. We have a question from Carol something. Um, Okay, so we have someone from Facebook. So it's up on Facebook. They're just not able to give comments, I guess. Um, So she says, um, oh, yeah, we got that. We got that question. All right, so thank you. Uh, Appreciate that. So, yeah, we are um, we are getting some questions from Facebook. Does it look like it that came in from Calvary Tucson from Facebook? So. All right. Well, we we did get that question from Carol. So thanks for sharing that. But we already got that question. Uh, And let me just see if we've got any more here. We are almost done. I appreciate you guys. And um, let me see here. Let I me mean, we're going to bring this in. And then uh, it looks like a question. My son asked me how to explain to unbelievers how we have Jewish people today. How would you explain the existence of the Jewish nation? I believe Abraham was the person to begin the Jewish nation's nation. Thank you for your help. Okay, Donna. Yeah. Um, so God raised up a nation from Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob then the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes, and then they, they went into Egypt for 400 years, and then they were made slaves, and they were delivered from slavery, brought into the land, were under the judges for a couple hundred, a few hundred years, and then under the kings for a few hundred years, and then because of their sin, were taken into captivity into Babylon and Assyria. And then they were released and allowed to go back, but never really to the former, and then the Romans, the Greeks took over the area, then the Romans took over the area, and they found themselves being in bondage to them. And then when Jesus came upon his rejection, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed this, just completely annihilated Jerusalem, and dispersed them around the world. Now, there were still Jews around the world that were dispersed from the Babylonian dispersion and the Assyrian dispersion. And now you have the Roman dispersion and they kept their distinctiveness because of the laws. The way they cut their hair, the way they wore their hair, they had to have tassels hanging down from their clothes. And so wherever they went in the world, they were distinct from the cultures around them and they were able to keep their distinctiveness because God needed a remnant to bring the Messiah through them and to to keep his promises to them. So that today we have, last time I checked 14 million Jews in the world today, and um that's how how we got the jewish nation today and jesus of course was jewish and came from that jewish nation and god promised abraham one of your descendants is going to bless all nations and so god raised them up for that very purpose so they could bless all nations all right so thank you donna for your question i really appreciate that hopefully that's helpful Um, if you have a more specific question or something seems confusing to you, um, we're getting close to the end of this Q&A, but you can ask a question, uh, follow up at a following Q&A and we'll be able to cover those things. All right, so thank you very much uh, for joining me. I'm glad that this worked out with uh, looks like mostly YouTube people. So I'm glad that we were able to have our Q&A today and uh, my mistake of putting it up for the wrong time. But um, I, Let's see. We have one more question from Jari. We'll answer this question and then we'll wrap it up. So this is it. Um, Why did God create so many people? Is God after a specific number for salvation? Every four minutes, a human soul is born from Adam and Eve to the last person. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why God chose the number of people that he was going to choose. And I don't know. It never says that, that he's after a certain specific number of people. It talks about the fullness of the Gentiles then there's Jews who are saved people who are saved before the flood, after the flood, so on, so forth. All right. So God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, Hate sin. Recognize that you can be deceived, the Bible says by and, and then sin is deceptive. So if we can be deceived, and sin is deceptive, we can almost guarantee that we are deceived by sin. And that's why we have to believe what God says about sin. So may the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you. May he be sanctifying you, taking you closer and closer to him. May God be working sin out of our lives as we long to serve him wholeheartedly. I love you guys. We will not have a and a on Wednesday, but we will have one again next Sunday, Lord willing. All right. Love you. God bless you. I'm out. We'll see you in about an hour for a service, and we will be in Luke 22 talking about biblical greatness or uh, seven steps to biblical leadership, how to be good leaders. And whether you're a leader of your home or the leader at at work or your church, uh, this is going to be a good study for you. So that's in about an hour. Look forward to seeing you guys there. Love you. We'll see you later on. I'm out.